Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. Well, excited to be here. Uh, excited for 500 hours of press, stoke the fire. Um, I think just really excited about what God's going to do through it. Uh, but I must admit, I'm slightly devastated. Um, often as a leader, you have visions of what may happen and amazing uh, images, great announcement. But I did just communicate to the team that um, as part of this, I wanted uh, the band and the team to come up with a reworking of the Proclaimers. I'm going to be 500 miles, 1988 uh, hit from the uh, One Hit Wonders from Leith in Edinburgh. And I wanted to rework it as I'm going to pray 500 hours and then I'll pray 500 hours more. Um, and I just had visions of us all singing that. But, you know, so I, I begin with a broken heart. Uh, but we have a number of weeks left. Um, so this is my passive aggressive way of um, making this happen. Um, we, can, we can all dream. Uh, I'm going to be so good. Just got that. Anyway, okay. I'm going to pray. God, we are grateful to be in your presence. We're grateful that you speak to us through your word. And uh, we're grateful that you are moving in history. You're moving in our lives individually. You're moving corporately. Uh, and yeah, we just pray that you'll move in our hearts today in your name. Pray against anything that's not of you. Pray that your word may plant a seed in our hearts that may bring fruit and new creation in your name. Amen. We are week two into a series called Platforms to Pillars. And there's two elements to this. The first is this idea from platforms to pillars, this concept that in our world today, we have this platform mentality. Uh, it encompasses individualism, that everyone should be put on a personal platform to how we communicate that we need to get on a platform to be heard in the world. And contrasted with that is this concept of pillars, the pillars that make up the living temple that God is building in the world. A pillar in a community is someone who is behind the scenes often, allowing things to happen for others. An elder in a community, a pillar. And it's a very biblical image. So that journey from pillars to, to uh, sorry, from platform to pillars is also one we see in the second element of this series in the book of Exodus, where the people of God find themselves in a land, Egypt, based in a platform mentality. And then we get this journey to encounter the living God in the wilderness who constructs or calls them to construct the tabernacle, which is this construction which has different pillars in it, which enables uh, space to be created for God to move. So we began last week uh, with the story of uh, a new order rising in Egypt. The people of God had been living in Egypt for some time. Joseph, who was sold into slavery, then ended up in Egypt where he found flourishing. He lived his faith in a difficult time and place, but through obedience and faithfulness, uh, God blessed him, but also blessed his family and blessed Egypt. But the sort of plot twist that we read of last week where it says, you know, a new Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph and a new era begins. And in this era, there's actually oppression and exploitation of the people of God in Egypt. So we're going to pick up again in Exodus 1, 
But we're going to talk about another key moment in this drama. Uh, Exodus 1, uh, beginning at part B of verse 15, says this. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not, know, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before their midwives arrive. So God said it was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, let every Hebrew boy that is born to you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So the order goes from the midwives to the whole population. We're going to come back to this. But I want to begin with a quote from the ancient world. The mathematician Archimedes said famously, give me a place to stand and I'll move the world. And what he was speaking of was leverage. This idea that if you stand somewhere and you leverage that, you can move tremendous weights if you stand in the right place. But his world, ancient Greece, actually believed that there was another place from which you could gain leverage to move the world. It was a small platform. It was an innovation that was brought into culture at that time. And the ancient Greeks called it a podium. And what would happen is a podium would be set up in a public square somewhere. All throughout the Greek world, they existed. And the idea was that the world was moved through ideas and content. That if you could find somewhere to stand and elevate your message and be seen and be heard by a lot of people, that your idea then could actually move the world. The Romans took this idea and in Latin, a podium is a pulpitium what I'm in front of now. And you see this image here and so much of the sort of drama of the ancient Greek world was actually around different philosophers and thinkers who would come in and bring a new message. We see this in the book of Acts when Paul comes into Athens and speaks with Areopagus and presents this message and the Greeks debate it and listen. And so this was a belief that the podium was a platform of influence. The podium could influence the world. Now, this basis of this idea, that if you can find the right place to stand and get the largest audience, then you can move the world. And what the podium is, it's the elevation of an individual and their message and then delivering it to the masses. So if you want to communicate something, if you've got a breakthrough idea, you need to find the place to stand to do this, and the podium is the place. Now, this tradition continued, but increasingly became strange. You can find places today, like in London, there's still Hyde Park, has Speaker's Corner, where still today you can hear various people argue uh, and give talks in the tradition of ancient Greece. But really, it's a bit strange when someone gets up and gives a speech in public these days. You seem to be a slightly strange, unusual person often. It's how the public seems to receive this. And partially that's because podiums changed. As mass media began, podiums like television, radio, newspapers, magazines, media became the places that you stood upon, the platforms from which you influenced the world. 
But there was an entry point. It was very expensive. And often it was magnates and rich people who would buy media in order to get their message across. So it was a high bar. You had to have a lot of money and power and influence to be able to get a podium. But the advent of social media has changed this. The cost of broadcasting a message to the world is almost free now. And that single direction of these one-way conversations that mass media had has now changed this world where everyone is talking to everyone. Everyone has a podium in their pocket. Social media has created a world of platforms. And so the language we now use, the Greeks used philosopher, orator, rhetorician, rhetor I can't say that word, rhetorician, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. But what we use is this word influencer. The idea that if you can get a large enough online audience and enough eyeballs on your content, clicks, likes, that actually you then have a place to influence the world. And we've seen this. People like Joe Rogan are literally like now hundreds of times bigger audiences than some of our large mainstream networks. And there's all kinds of influences in every field from physical fitness influences to people who make bespoke vases to any field of human endeavor at the moment. You'll find that there's a group of influences through their platforms that are actually influencing what people think about that little world. In fact, a lot of our newspapers today, if you go into Herald Sun or news.com.au, The Age, whatever, you can actually find that so much of the commentary now is what on, it's basically commentary on what influencers have already said. This redefines how we understand what it is to move the world. It's less about the character of someone, their positional power, it's more about the size of the podium on which they stand. Now, many of us in this room may not really want to be influencers, but can I just break it to you that emerging generations like under 15, this is what the main job that people want to have these days is to be an influencer. But the reality is that most of us are influenced by influencers. Why? Because we live in a platform society. This is how we see the world being moved today. Now, last week, we talked about that there was a similar dynamic in Egypt. That every few years, Pharaoh would be re-coronated. At the Heb Sed Festival, Pharaoh would get on this platform, this pavilion, and would walk around raising his hands in the air. Sometimes they'd run or jog around to prove that they were vigorous and they would platform themselves continually to reinforce their relevance. But there was another element that I didn't talk about, and that was the belief also that the Pharaoh had to go onto this platform to remind people of their divine nature. Pharaoh was seen as a god, and one of the ways that you were seen as a god in the ancient Near East was your ability to bring order to chaos, particularly chaotic waters. The life source of ancient Egypt was actually the Nile River. When the Nile River flooded into the Nile Delta, that meant that farmers' crops would, would, would harvest and you'd bring economic uh, prosperity to Egypt. They could build up their military. So the Nile was the life source to the entire Egyptian civilization. 
And so one of the things for the, for the Pharaoh was that they had to then preside over and claim that they could divinely control the weather patterns that would ensure the Nile would flood. And this is what's called fertility religion. Fertility religion is where you offer things to the gods in order for the world to move, for the crops to harvest, for people to be, have children, for goodness and flourishing to be amongst your people. Now, in the same way today, in our chaotic world, filled with all kinds of confusing and contradictory information, we look to influences, consciously or not. And in a sense, that idea of a fertility religion actually is ancient, but hasn't really gone away. When we look to how to flourish in a particular area, we look to influences, platforms to guide us, to give us the right information, the right hacks, the right direction, help us to interpret what is going on. But what we see in Exodus is an illustration of actually how the world is moved, of how God moves the world, how he partners with people to shape his salvation history. And what I want to do is in chapter one and two, we encounter several women who show us how God moves in history. Now, it's worth saying it's interesting that God sort of doesn't appear as a character in Exodus 1 and 2 until the second sort of part of chapter 2, when he hears the cries of the people and responds in compassion. But that actually doesn't mean that he's absent. God is moving, and the way that he's moving is through the actions of a number of these people that we encounter. And I want to just outline three And I want to outline the ways that they illustrate, in contrast to the platform mentality of our day and ancient Egypt, I think how God moves in the world through partnering with us. The first ones are the midwives. And a midwife is really interesting. What does a midwife do? They are present at the birth of new creation. The midwives are the pillars at the birth of new creation. And I'm arguing today that in order to do a new thing, God partners with pillars and pillars preside over that. So let's read verse 17. It says, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Now what's of note is the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. They said yes to God and no to the system of the world. And that's really key. The yes of God often will be a no to the world. And to birth something new, to break this cycle which had continually gone on, to break the cycle of oppression that the people are living under, they had to say no to the world and yes to God. And that's what made them a midwife of a new creation. Pillars are midwives of new creation. Let's read on. In Exodus 2 verse 1, it says this, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married to a Levite woman, married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, a mini ark. 
Then she placed the child in it and put it amongst the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, what's of note in this? Remember, how do the Egyptians see the world? The Egyptians see the world that Pharaoh's legitimacy is based on his controlling of the Nile. He was seen as a god and in, co- in connection with the gods who are part of the Nile. And so we have this story, God's redemptive action actually takes part in the Nile, and that's not an accident. Pharaoh claims to be in control of the Nile. What this story is telling us is actually, no, God is going to work his purposes through the Nile. And also just also through the Nile, which means that God's actually the one in control of the chaotic waters of the Nile. So this is telling you what's happened, but it's also, in a sense, this this argument against the worldview of the Egyptians. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went, got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. The second person I want to introduce you to as a pillar is Moses' mother. And Moses' mother in this story is a pillar of what I'm going to call the fragile move of God. Now, Moses' mother also, like the midwife, says no to the order of the day. And what's also of note is that Moses' mother comes from the line of Levi. The scripture tells us, what does that mean? The Levites were the priestly division within the people of God. And what do priests do? Priests shepherd, priests steward, priests care. And so Moses' mother is shepherding and caring for her child. And that seems normal, like a maternal instinct. But there's something else going on here as well. Moses who will become this incredible man of God, this leader who God is behind, leading his people out of Egypt, meeting with God at Mount Sinai. All of those things he is not yet. At this point, Moses is weak and fragile and simply a small baby. Moses is the tool which God is going to use, yet at this point he is absolutely fragile, defenseless and helpless. And so what Moses' mother does in this story is she stewards and protects the move of God. There is a bounty on these children. The, The king of the nation has commanded parents to kill the sons. And she says, no. Imagine this moment to protect the life of your child, having to place them in this little vessel, And what we see here is something that's really key about becoming a pillar. And by the way, just spoiler on this entire series, I believe that God is calling you to be a pillar. Not some of you, all of you. Moses' mother stewards and protects the move of God when it is small and unimpressive. Stewards 
pillars steward the move of God when they were emerging uncool and unremarkable. Stewards turn up to the prayer meeting when there's hardly anyone there. Stewards worship with all their might when the rest of the people are sort of like, I would walk 500. That, that, that they actually are the ones who turn up to the service when there's, oh, there's not many people here. Is this thing really moving? They are the ones who steward when other people can't see it. And what they do is they steward with faith and trust. And this is what we see in Moses' mother's life. This is a life of sacrificial trust. To have your child, to be trusting the will of God, where literally you're placing life into the hands of God by placing this child onto the river is an incredible act. And at some points in your life, you get to the point where literally you are stewarding life in God's hands. We see this in the life of Moses' mother. Now, in this story, there's also the third pillar I want to introduce you to. And this is Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, I'm calling here the unlikely pillar, really unlikely. The first two come from the lowest levels of society, a Hebrew midwife, this Hebrew woman in an Egyptian society, which is super hierarchical. And so just at this point, you think that's what the the pattern of the story is and that's part of the pattern of the story. But then we have this person who's not at the bottom, this person who's actually right at the top, Pharaoh's daughter, part of the elite, the princess. And this shows us that God will move in places and people which will surprise us, often creating unlikely pillars. And again, too, we see that God is going to have his purposes despite whatever Pharaoh thinks. This is a battle between Yahweh, God, and Pharaoh, who thinks he's a God. And so Pharaoh, who may intend to kill the people of God, but what God is going to show is that he's in control when he literally turns a member of Pharaoh's own household into a pillar of redemption, his own daughter. And what we see later in the scriptures is part of what goes wrong with Pharaoh is the scriptures tell us that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It's become cold. it's, It's almost bitter. There's no meaning in it. It's like a stone. But then we read that when Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby, it says this, she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. Now, just in case at this point, we think this is just like, a young woman and the maternal instincts there because she's found a cute baby. The scripture then says, this is one of the Hebrew babies, she realizes. Whereas Pharaoh's heart is hardened, her heart is compassionate. Where Pharaoh is brutal, his daughter has mercy. Where Pharaoh chooses death, Pharaoh's daughter chooses life. And so Pharaoh's daughter becomes this unlikely pillar of faith. She's a different kind of pillar to the other women here. I'm not saying that she's following Yahweh with all her heart at this point, the God of the Bible. But what we do see in this act is a kind of first step towards God, not just for the daughter, but for the Egyptian people. Reading these stories, you can think that God's love is just for Israel. But what this story tells us is actually God's heart is for the nations. God loves South Korea, Tonga, Ethiopia, the Netherlands. And this step that this young woman takes, this yes to God, 
was the slow building of a pillar of faith that would grow in the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh sets out an anti-God order in Egypt, yet God does something completely different. Church, history tells us, most likely the apostle, the disciple, Mark, also known as John Mark, actually travels to bring the good news of Jesus to Egypt and establishes a church in Alexandria, which then goes on to become one of the key learning centers in a lot of the ancient world for the church. As the church becomes compromised and and worldly in Egypt, in the third and fourth century, this group of believers called the Desert Fathers and Desert Mothers go out to the desert and live this very different counter-cultural way that's almost prophetic to the corruption of the church. With the rise of Islam in the seventh century, the church in Egypt comes under tremendous pressure and a long line of martyrdom and persecution which continues even into our lifetimes. Numerous churches in your lifetime in modern Egyptian cities have faced attack by suicide bombers to probably the high point of faithfulness in the Egyptian church. When in Libya in 2015, as part of a propaganda video by the militant group ISIS, 21 migrant workers from Egypt were captured by ISIS, and on camera, asked to recant their faith. Every one of them refused, and with their last breath, yelled, Jesus is Lord, before losing their life. Egypt has a strong heritage of faithful Christians who have not bent under the pressure that has now lasted for centuries. And I think that destiny is actually built on this moment of saying no to an anti-God system that comes against a nation's destiny. And so pillars actually don't just build for themselves, they build forward in the generations. Pillars are early adopters of faithfulness. And if you want to understand what a pillar is, that word faithfulness is so key. Mark Scarlata says this in his commentary on Exodus. Speaking of these women we've discussed today, their faithfulness to what is true and what is good takes root and allows for a seed to spring up in the person of Moses. He will be the good fruit produced from the works of these women. We are so used to the platform mentality that we think it's about building our platform or watching some super special person's platform. But what this story is telling us that the way God moves in history is often you're acting as a pillar for what God's going to do in someone else maybe in a generation that comes after you. What this also says to us is that many of us stand in places of flourishing or we have faith because of what people have done to be pillars before us. And so faithfulness is key. It's these acts and habits of faithfulness upon which God builds. Even before the pyrotechnics of God moving in mighty ways and the overt experiences of the Spirit, these habits of faithfulness are the pillars upon which God builds. Now sometimes it's really interesting, a little inside knowledge. When I have a foreign speaker coming in, speak to Australian audiences, I've learned to prepare them because what they're quite shocked by is that Australians are very reserved when you speak to them in an audience. And they're just like, get off stage. They're like, did I mess up? I was like, no, it's the Australians. 
They're very reserved. And it's interesting in that sense of like, if you look at the, the conversation in the church now, people coming less often, it's, it's harder to find faithfulness and commitment and so on. But actually, I don't think it's an Australian thing. Now, my kids play sport, all three of them. And yesterday I went along to sport and kids play soccer, daughter plays basketball, uh, boys play soccer, twin boys, uh, uh, my daughter plays basketball. So I spent it down the sidelines of parent sport yesterday. And can I just say that reservedness goes out the window when it comes to sport in Australia. And you know, you're an under 12s like soccer game and there's some poor guy who's been put on his linesman and like they're trying to call the offside trap or whatever. And people are getting so emotional about like under 12 soccer and it's cheering them on. At basketball, you know, like there's this constant loudness. All of the introversion that often happens in church disappears uh, when it's sport. You know, come on girls, let's go, yes, uh, Brand. Uh, that was my uh, reconstruction of um, sport. When it's half time, it doesn't stop. Uh, people are pulling out phones and they're watching KO Sport and they're following the football and they are totally into it. I mean, literally in the last few days, there's been like people in Australia who become experts on what is happening in the last 48 hours to rain systems over the United Kingdom as to whether the ashes you know, will, be, will be rain delayed. Australians, you fly into Melbourne and literally you see our temples of worship. It's not just the MCG, it's Amy Park. It's, it's, it's all these different stadiums that we see when you fly in. You see that we are incredibly faithful to sport. People follow their teams through thick and thin. They tithe to their teams. It's called membership in Victoria. They <laughs> disciple their, their, their kids to follow the sport and to elite programs. If Australia's faithfulness to sport could be replicated by the church, revival. I like sport. Don't give up sport. Sport's good. In its right place. But I just want to say that where we are at is that the next generation coming up, Gen Z, we have some of them in our midst. And talking to more and more people, many of them are walking away. But the ones who are sticking around want to see an authenticity and a faithfulness in the older generations. Otherwise, I think they're going to walk out the door. They're not just going to turn up because that's what you did. And so I think many of us are actually being invited to be pillars for ourselves and what God is doing now, but for the next generation. And why faithfulness? Because God is faithful to us. The story of Exodus is God's faithfulness to his people. His desire to move heaven and earth to see deliverance. His heart to move in history towards his ends. And we see this pointing towards what will happen when Jesus, his own son, dies upon the cross for us. God is incredibly faithful to you. God is deeply faithful in his love. And we must respond in faithfulness to him. You see... What's really interesting is that, as I said, God doesn't really turn up as, as you know, a sort of active participant in the story until about chapter two. But what we do see is that God is moving. And it's these quiet times when it's not the big moves of God. They're coming in Exodus, like seas are gonna get parted, the Torah will be given on top of a mountain, there's gonna be lightning, that stuff's gonna happen. The spirit is gonna fill the tabernacle. But in chapter one, and half of chapter 2, what we see is these habits of faithfulness 
when God seems absent or not moving mightily, set you up for how you act when God's presence is powerful. Let me put this another way. Pillars commit to the breakthrough that happens before the breakthrough. I'm going to say that again because you need to hear it. Pillars commit to the breakthrough that happens before the breakthrough. Midwives, Moses' mother, when it's fragile, when it's hardly moving, these are the people who commit at that moment. Anyone can commit when it's viral. Anyone can commit and turn up to the big movement when everyone's there. Everyone can turn up to the church service where it's packed to the rafters. Everyone can turn up to the prayer meeting where it's just like standing room only. These things are easy. Our world loves the virality of the platform and jumping on board when it's trending. I won't make any comments about Barbie. But pillars actually turn up when very few people are interested because they're seeing with spiritual eyes. Pillars are built. They build. They partner with God in what he's building by faithfulness. And this is more true than ever in the age of faithfulness in which we live. I'm going to just say this too. Before I end, I've got one story to end, but I just want to say this too. One of the myths of today and of the platform mentality is that you can find community, relationship, and connection without faithfulness. That it's like a can of Pepsi you can just buy from the shelf and open and get it. The deep connection that we desire, that many people look for, that is becoming more and more difficult and disappearing in our age, is because we've not been taught by our culture to be faithful. But God is faithful, and he wants to build something new. And I think the moment that we're in, this invitation to pray for 500 hours, these things are not just things that we do if they're programmatic. These are things because we actually believe that God wants to move in this time and God wants to move in Australia and change the direction of the church in Australia. Last week, we talked about the relational breakdown that's happening in our culture. That's not just going to be life hacked away. That we actually need God to move at this time and we need him to come with power. But I think God is asking us who is going to step into the place of faithfulness and be a pillar. That's what Exodus tells us. And many of these people who move in Exodus 1 and 2, we don't know a lot about them. And often that's the way. Some of you in this room, have been pillars of what God is doing here at Red. Some of you in this room, when I drive past our prayer room and I see cars have been praying, some of you in this room are turning up and pressing into what God is doing. And you may not be seen in the way that the world wants you to be seen on a platform, but I just want to encourage you that God sees. And there's kingdom vision and he's pleased. And some of you feel like you've been pouring out for ages, but the Holy Spirit sees that and he's saying, well done, keep going. Others have not been formed by a culture of faithfulness, but God is inviting you into that. God is preparing a place for his pillars. So let's stand and let's pray. God, I'm just going to pray a real simple prayer. Bring your spirit. God, build pillars. God, give us faithfulness. God, we confess that we live in an age of unfaithfulness. 
God, we confess that we are unfaithful to you, to others, to your church, to our neighborhoods, to the poor. And God, we want to be changed. We want to be built into people of faithfulness. So Father, we thank you for the faithfulness and the pillars that are in this room, but God, we pray for more. God, we pray for a vast array, a forest of pillars to be built upon which the next breakthrough that you're going to do in the Aussie church is going to come from, God. God, help us to be faithful stewards when it's small and embryonic and fragile. God, help us to say no to the systems of the world which just say, build a platform for yourself. And help us to say yes to you, we pray in Jesus' name.